This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 13, Episode 35. This is Writing Excuses, Cliché versus Archetype. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. And we're going to be talking about archetypes as tools, tropes as tools. Now, specifically this week, the idea is that we are approaching these as tools that every writer uses, consciously or unconsciously, and we're going to talk about how to use archetypes, how to use tropes, or at what points you want to back away or subvert that trope. Let me start off by saying you can't avoid tropes. Um, Mm -hmm. Tropes are the way by which you know, we communicate in a lot of ways. It's the way by which stories work. And also, tropes are not bad in and of themselves. The fact they are simply something that exists that are pieces and building blocks that stories come from. You know, let me let me open with a metaphor that has always worked well for me. Um, if you have ever had fresh green beans, they are pretty delicious. Boiled, however, if you've ever had canned green beans, they are less delicious. When you do a cliche, when you use a trope, an archetype, or a cliche, and you get it wrong, we can taste the can. When you get it right, it's fresh green beans, and even if we've had it before, we like it. Also, add butter. <laughs> a, a friend of mine uses a slightly different metaphor, which uh, is very similar also in the, well, this tastes like poo, um, <laughs> which is that tropes are building blocks. Um, but that sometimes building blocks are made of poo, and that's not architecturally sound. <laughs> well, so I, let's let's suppose. dig in there. Um, <laughs> let me ask you and I build things very differently. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Don't use that archetype. It's canned poo. <laughs> so how do you make the poo not canned, Howard? <laughs> How do you make it fresh? <laughs> I don't know. No, but no. <laughs> <laughs> it's lost control. No, the, the, there's yeah. a reason that this that Howard's canned metaphor is actually really good. Mm-hmm. Is that there are a lot of things that when they are fresh, when they are new, mm-hmm. they are not a cliche yet. This is you know this is why you, that there's that joke about oh Shakespeare, he, everything he wrote was a cliche right. because he mm-hmm. wrote it first and then people started using it. And there's a, a thing that will happen over the life cycle of, of an idea, which is that someone will have, you know, the, the rare original idea. Um, and it's, you know, it's like, oh, it's so fresh and new, like, like Dracula, although Dracula was not. So yeah, here's where I'm going to argue with you, because I think that uh, at, during Shakespeare's time, those things were already all tropes. Yeah, well, that, that's, yes. Um, what I'm saying is that to go from trope to cliche, mm-hmm. uh, the cliche is the can. Right. Thing. So what is the building block? How do you make this happen? How do you, like, I'm worried that our listener is going to be like, all right, so I need to find the original idea. I need to do things no one else has done. Without understanding, that's just not humanly possible. Now, what you can do is you can take something and you can say, all right, I'm going to recontextualize this. I'm going to use it in an interesting way, or I'm going to be well aware that this is a trope and dig down, as we talked about a couple years ago, the difference between a cook and a chef, right? The cook uses the the trope 
as it is just because it is a trope, whereas the chef says, all right, what does this trope do to the reader? What, um, why is this trope interesting? How can I properly incorporate this into my story? Um, if you want to take an example of this, Firefly, the television show, is a series of very, very time-worn tropes. Um, you've got the prostitute with the heart of gold. You've got the preacher. You've got the mysterious stranger. You've got, I mean, everyone uh, on that ship is a very, very, they're cliche. They're straight up cliche that in the context of that story, they are all delightful, interesting, fun, and feel very fresh and original characters, despite the fact that he's changed them only a little bit from the cliche. Several years ago, we recorded, and it was just the the uh, the three of us, um, the three dudes, uh, we recorded What Did the Dark Knight Get Right? Yeah. And one of the things we said is that uh, the dialogue was always unpredictable. You didn't have comic book dialogue. You didn't have somebody say, you know, I'm going to get you for this. Um, you did have, you know, Batman in a gravelly voice. Right. But even when he was doing that, you didn't know what he was going to say. And you contrast that with, uh, I think it was Hellboy 2, which had cliche throwaway line after throwaway line. And for me, that is the flavor of the can. And that is one of the easiest things to pluck out of your work. You look at something that someone has just said. Uh, you know, for instance, what did you do? Well, what did you do has been uttered by actors thousands and thousands of times. It's not something that is technically cliche, but if you're trying to throw it as, as something that's, you know, really strong, you might have trouble. Is there another way for that character to ask that question? Jane Espenson says that, uh, that new writers will often write things and go, oh, this is right, and it's right because it's familiar. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's one of the things that happens to us a lot. And and you are absolutely right that there is not an original idea. That going out and yep. finding the original idea is not the answer. It's right. the, it's I mean, the combining of the. There yeah. are that does happen. You're yeah. right. The one, the, but I I worry about writers feeling like they have to find that rather than learning to to do yeah. what we're match, talking yeah. about. So the the example that keeps coming to mind while we're talking about this is the TV show Atlanta uh, by Donald Glover, which I've started watching belatedly. And what is fascinating to me is that it feels incredibly fresh. Everything in it, like my jaws on the floor, a lot of it, because I've never seen this before. And I think they've found something new. They've found something I've never seen before. What's going on is that they are using a lot of these well-worn tropes. A lot of the events and the situations and the relationships are the same as in every other sitcom, but they are combined with a very specific life experience, and an incredible sense of place that I am not personally familiar with. And that gives those tropes a freshness that really shines through. I think that's a really salient way to put it, Dan. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
let's go ahead and stop for the book of the week, which is actually my book, um, The Apocalypse Garden. You sound Garden. so worried. <laughs> yeah, well, so I'm worried because I don't know if it's out yet because we're recording this a year ahead. And the publisher has not exactly committed to a release date. It might be September. It might be October. That's so cliche. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to just run with it and assume it's out or is coming out very soon. You can pre-order it if it's not out, yes. which also helps. Yes. yes. I By did, the way, pre-orders are very good for authors. They yes. are very good. And I did just submit it to my editor, so we're hoping that they'll <laughs> like it. But what is the uh, book about, yes. Brandon? <laughs> At this stage in its revision, the book yes. is about. <laughs> is about. So this, it's the story of, I wanted to tell the story of the person who fetches Superman's coffee. Um, uh-huh. It is the story of a... Uh, an intern from Iona, Idaho, where my uh, father is from, who gets a job being the clerical intern slash coffee girl for the Apocalypse Guard, who are basically a version of the Justice League. And they save planets through the multiverse when they are threatened with destruction. That's their job. That's why they were formed. Well, at the beginning of the book, the Apocalypse Guard gets attacked by a shadowy force, and Emma, our main character, ends up getting teleported to a planet they were planning to rescue, but hadn't gotten around to yet. Uh, she gets there three weeks before a flood is going to destroy the entire planet. And she has no resources, no powers, and is an intern. And it's her story of trying to survive on this planet um, while everyone else is off fighting a greater evil and has forgotten about her. That is going to take a lot of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a delightful, uh, very fun, uh, fun. action-adventure yeah, book. I- I can I can get that book now, right? Yes, <laughs> you you can, you can get it now. You, <laughs> you and Mary Robinette Ball <laughs> can maybe get it now. We're just rubbing this in your oh, face as we this far. All right, so let's, let's uh, get back Move to, on the, to cliches. Uh, po- and... podcast that we do. Let me let um, me talk tools in a mm-hmm. in another specific way. I the line, what did you do? I just used that, and it will have been. Uh, you know, months ago for readers of Schlock Mercenary, just used that where Captain Tagom walks into the room because a thing has happened and he thinks it's Schlock's fault. And we've seen this before, you know, and, and Schlock is saying, oh, you know, it wasn't me. I didn't do that. Some sort of clever thing. Uh, Tagon says, what did you do? And Schlock is talking to the person who did it and is saying, see, angry face, playing up the fact that Schlock knows that this is a, a cliche and I doubled down on it by using the, uh, uh, I call this the the common tone transition, where the opening panel of the next strip, we've switched scenes, and a captain is yelling at a crew member saying, what did you do? And so, yeah, it's a cliche line. It's a throwaway line, but the way in which I'm using it, it Sure, right. hope I'm going to get away with it. You're stepping toward what we call subversion, yeah. Um, yeah, which is where you take the trope, you are aware of it, and you do something to play off the fact that the reader might know about this trope. So my question next for you guys is, when do you subvert and when do you play it straight? For instance, um, you, it was called Atlanta, the show that you're yeah, watching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're playing it straight, it seems like. They're recontextualizing the tropes, but they're still using them. Whereas something like Deadpool is built around subverting tropes. You both, we all share a context. I'm going to make a joke about it. That's a subvert, subversion of the trope. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always have to be a joke, Yeah, I was going to say. Um, the character you don't subversion, expect. One yeah. of my favorite subversions is the, uh, the crossing the threshold in the hero, hero's journey 
in How to Train Your Dragon, where instead of killing the dragon, he frees the dragon. It's a literal 180-degree inversion of, of what we expect in the hero's journey. And when I watched it, you know, because I'm familiar with some of that, I watched it. I actually got chills when it happened. Like, oh my gosh, that's a huge subversion. Can they stick this? And throughout that film, there was subversion after subversion where moments that you expected in the hero's journey were handled in ways that were different. So the uh, the hero's journey in archetypes, um, one of the... The, my favorite subversion flipping of, of an archetype is the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the wise, uh, uh, the wise old man, the uh, mentor, the mentor mm-hmm. figure, which is, which is always a Gandalf kind of, you know, it's a tall old man. It's a Dumbledore, tall old man, white man with, with a long gray beard of some variety. Yoda is that archetype, but he's a little green toad guy. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that we love him. He's he's still occupying the old. Um, he's still occupying the wise and filled with power, but he is small and green and very crotchety, and 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 a muppet. And, <laughs> but I think that that if you look at one of these things and you you um, if you go back to our casting exercise, and you flip an axis, flip uh, one of the the pieces that the hour that the um the power dynamics that they live in that, that sometimes you can wind up with a character who's still fulfilling the archetypal roles but is way more interesting you know you you mentioned a hero's journey we should really do a podcast on that someday <laughs> yeah we, we've tried oh, a couple of times <laughs> in your I? face loyal listeners <laughs> I'm sorry if you're not part of the end joke. Go listen to uh, many, many seasons ago on that one. Um, all right. So how do you decide? We never answered this. When yeah. you play it straight and when you subvert. I don't know. Um, so I think one of the, the things is that it is, it is useful to be aware of what these archetypes are uh, and what these, these tropes are. Um, and understand that these are already in your brain. So for me, one of the things that I will do is um, I will kind of glance, because I'm a planner, I will look at my plan to make sure that I have not accidentally deployed one of the tropes mm-hmm. um, that, I, that I didn't want to. Um, or an archetype, it's like, oh, look, this, this character is living in that role. Um, so sometimes I'll use it as a diagnostic tool, um, in the, uh, the planning stage or in the editing stage. Um, and, and, and I, I kind of, I look at the, the, um, to go back to, to voice the area of intention, like what, what function is this serving? And, and if I actually need the archetype to serve a function, then I look at ways that I can subvert it in some ways or, or to double down on it. Yeah. This is a really difficult one to talk about and you can hear us kind of talking around it because um, everything is a trope. Yeah. And so you can't be aware even of all the ones you're doing. In fact, if you go to the websites that collect these things, it can be a really eye-opening or a really disastrous experience when you read mm-hmm. and see all the things you're doing. Because mm-hmm. as a writer, you think, wow, this is so fresh and new, when it's really not. Um, and that can be very dangerous. At the same time, 
we should go back to the fact that some of these uh, tropes, these cliches, are just steaming piles of poo. Um, and <laughs> yes. knowing which ones are and that you should just not use um, because next week we'll talk about your our own internal biases as writers. Mm-hmm. So we'll d- dig into this quite a bit. But there there's awareness you need to have. And if you don't, um, people will call you on it. Yeah, there's a lot of things. There are tropes um, and arch- uh, tropes and cliches that are are damaging because they reinforce harmful stereotypes about people who have to live with the consequences of those stereotypes being in the world. Um, so, uh, so you'll hear people talk about uh, some examples are uh, the the magical Negro, the the model minority. Um, these are great white savior. The great white savior. Um, these are examples uh, that are rooted in a colonialist um, background and and will are really very damaging. So the idea that uh, with with the magical Negro is that a black character exists only to support a white character's journey and to dispense advice. And so you may sit there and go, well, you know, I put this character in because I want to make sure that black people are represented well. But what you've done is you've put a character in that has no arc of their own and, and, and is reinforcing the idea that, you know, from colonialism, that black people were there just to support white people, which is damaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it's difficult because it is in so much media, and again, we'll talk about this more next week, that, that you've internalized it. So it's really important to, to be aware of these things, and it's difficult to be aware of them as, at the same time. I, I want to talk about some other cliches, and I want, to, I want to preface this by saying I'm speaking of cliches that are not harmful, but just are very tired. And when we get into those... I think it's worth pointing out that who you're writing for will move that line of which cliches work and which don't, you know? I remember having a conversation with Brandon years and years ago about different levels of originality in the fantasy market. You know, there are people who will read Chanam Yeville and anything less weird and wild than him is considered old and tired. And then, you know, almost every level has someone who's like this. I am all about this author and, you know, everyone who is less creative than this one or less Another original example. than this one is too boring for me. Another example of this is one that we uh, we talked about this here, which is the, the cliche from uh, the superhero genre, which is that all of these superheroes at some point are going to fight each other. The plot is going to build be built so that that is going to happen. Well, here's the thing. People who love superhero stories want that. That's a cliche that you are allowed to deploy. If it's going to taste like canned green beans, it means you've done it wrong. If it's going to taste fresh, it's because when it happened, Mm -hmm. it surprised us. Well, and the point that I want to make is that for the audience that wants that, it will taste fresh. And for an audience that doesn't, they might not like it no matter how well you do it. All right, Mary, you have our homework. Yes. Okay, so we've been talking about tropes. We did not talk about one of the best tools for learning what those tropes are, and that's called tvtropes.com. So here is your homework. Set a timer. Oh, thank goodness. It's important. It's important <laughs> it's to have really, a timer. really important um, because you can fall down the gravity well of tvtropes.com and just live there. So set a timer. I'm going to say for half an hour. 
and go to TV Tropes, pick a trope, pick a thing, boy meets girl, uh, or pick a book, one of your favorite books, and type that into the search, and then just follow the rabbit hole down. When your timer goes off, get out. Get out. (laughs) Get out and save yourself. Get out and go type in, you just don't get it, do you? And watch the YouTube video of clips from television shows and movies that have used that phrase. Um, just to kind of rinse and repeat or rinse and wash your, uh, your brain out. That's one of the ones I want you to do as yeah. well. Um, Trivi Tropes is amazing. Uh, it, is also, it is also a terrible, terrible thing. Yes. All right. Um, this has been Writing Excuses. I hope this was helpful for you. I hope that you learn how to use tropes and you are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 